Chapter Nineteen of Martin Eden by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen. Ruth and her family were home again, and Martin, returned to Oakland, saw much of her. Having gained her degree, she was doing no more studying, and he, having worked all vitality out of his mind and body, was doing no writing. This gave them time for each other that they had never had before, and their intimacy ripened fast. At first Martin had done nothing but rest. He had slept a great deal, and spent long hours musing and thinking and doing nothing. He was like one recovering from some terrible bout of hardship. The first signs of reawakening came when he discovered more than languid interest in the daily paper. Then he began to read again, light novels and poetry, and after several days more he was head over heels in his long-neglected fisk. His splendid body and health made new vitality, and he possessed all the resiliency and rebound of youth. Ruth showed her disappointment plainly when he announced that he was going to sea for another voyage as soon as he was well rested. "'Why do you want to do that?' she asked. "'Money,' was the answer. "'I'll have to lay in a supply for my next attack on the editors. Money is the sinews of war, in my case, money and patience.' "'But if all you wanted was money, why didn't you stay in the laundry?' "'Because the laundry was making a beast of me. Too much work of that sort drives to drink.' She stared at him with horror in her eyes. "'Do you mean—' she quavered. It would have been easy for him to get out of it, but his natural impulse was for frankness, and he remembered his old resolve to be frank, no matter what happened. "'Yes,' he answered. "'Just that, several times.' She shivered and drew away from him. "'No man I have ever known did that, ever did that.' Then they never worked in the laundry at Shelley Springs. He laughed bitterly. Toil is a good thing. It is necessary for human health, so all the preachers say. And heaven knows I've never been afraid of it. But there is such a thing as too much of a good thing, and the laundry up there is one of them. That's why I'm going to see one more voyage. It will be my last, I think. For when I come back I shall break into the magazines. I am certain of it. She was silent, unsympathetic and he watched her moodily, realizing how impossible it was for her to understand what he had been through. Some day I shall write it up, the degradation of toil, or the psychology of drink in the working class, or something like that for a title. Never, since the first meeting, had they seemed so far apart as that day. His confession, told in frankness, with the spirit of revolt behind, had repelled her. But she was more shocked by the repulsion itself than by the cause of it. It pointed out to her how near she had drawn to him, and, once accepted, it paved the way for greater intimacy. Pity, too, was aroused, and innocent, idealistic thoughts of reform. She would save this raw young man who had come so far. She would save him from the curse of his early environment and she would save him from himself, in spite of himself. And all this affected her as a very noble state of consciousness, nor did she dream that behind it and underlying it were the jealousy and desire of love. They rode on their wheels much in the delightful fall weather, 
and out in the hills they read poetry aloud, now one and now the other, noble, uplifting poetry, that turned one's thoughts to higher things. Renunciation, sacrifice, patience, industry, and high endeavor were the principles she thus indirectly preached, such abstractions being objectified in her mind by her father, and Mr. Butler, and by Andrew Carnegie, who, from a poor immigrant boy, had arisen to be the book-giver of the world. All of this was appreciated and enjoyed by Martin. He followed her mental processes more clearly now, and her soul was no longer the sealed wonder it had been. He was on terms of intellectual equality with her, but the points of disagreement did not affect his love. His love was more ardent than ever, for he loved her for what she was, and even her physical frailty was an added charm in his eyes. He read of sickly Elizabeth Barrett, who for years had not placed her feet upon the ground, until that day of flame when she eloped with Browning and stood upright, upon the earth, under the open sky, and what Browning had done for her, Martin decided he could do for Ruth, but first she must love him. The rest would be easy. He would give her strength and health, and he caught glimpses of their life, in the years to come wherein, against a background of work and comfort and general well-being, he saw himself and Ruth reading and discussing poetry, she propped amid a multitude of cushions on the ground, while she read aloud to him. This was the key to the life they would live. And always he saw that particular picture. Sometimes it was she who leaned against him while he read, one arm about her, her head upon his shoulder. Sometimes they pored together over the printed pages of beauty. Then, too, she loved nature. And with generous imagination he changed the scene of their reading. Sometimes they read in closed-in valleys with precipitous walls, or in high mountain meadows, and again, down by the gray sand-dunes with a wreath of billows at their feet, or afar on some volcanic tropic isle, where waterfalls descended and became mist, reaching the sea in vapor veils that swayed and shivered to every vagrant wisp of wind. But always, in the foreground, lords of beauty and eternally reading and sharing, lay he and Ruth, and always in the background that was beyond the background of nature, dim and hazy, were work and success and money earned that made them free of the world and all its treasures. "'I should recommend my little girl to be careful,' her mother warned her one day. "'I know what you mean, but it is impossible. He is not—' Ruth was blushing but it was the blush of maidenhood called upon for the first time to discuss the sacred things of life, with a mother held equally sacred. Your kind, her mother finished the sentence for her. Ruth nodded. I did not want to say it, but he is not. He is rough, brutal, strong, too strong. He has not. She hesitated and could not go on. It was a new experience talking over such matters with her mother, and again her mother completed her thought for her. He has not lived a clean life, is what you wanted to say. Again Ruth nodded, and again a blush mantled her face. It is just that, she said. It has not been his fault, but he has played much with—with with pitch. Yes, with pitch, 
and he frightens me. Sometimes I am positively in terror of him, when he talks in that free and easy way of the things he has done, as if they did not matter. They do matter, don't they? They sat with their arms twined around each other, and in the pause her mother patted her hand and waited for her to go on. But I am interested in him dreadfully, she continued. In a way he is my protégé. Then, too, he is my first boyfriend. Not exactly friend, rather protégé and friend combined. Sometimes, too, when he frightens me, it seems that he is a bulldog I have taken for a plaything, like some of the frat girls, and he is tugging hard and showing his teeth and threatening to break loose. Again her mother waited. He interests me, I suppose, like the bulldog. And there is much good in him, too. But there is much in him that I would not like in, in the other way. You see, I have been thinking. He swears, he smokes, he drinks. He has fought with his fists. He has told me so, and he likes it, he says so. He is all that a man should not be, a man I would want for my, her voice sank very low, husband. Then he is too strong. My prince must be tall and slender and dark, a graceful, bewitching prince. No, there is no danger of my falling in love with Martin Eden. It would be the worst fate that could befall me. But it is not that that I spoke about, her mother equivocated. Have you thought about him? He is so ineligible in every way, you know. And suppose he should come to love you. But he does already, she cried. It was to be expected, Mrs. Morse said gently. How could it be otherwise with anyone who knew you? Olney hates me, she exclaimed passionately. And I hate Olney. I always feel like a cat when he is around. I feel that I must be nasty to him. And even when I don't happen to feel that way, why, he's nasty to me anyway. But I am happy with Martin Eden. No one ever loved me before, no man, I mean, in that way. And it is sweet to be loved, that way. You know what I mean, mother dear. It is sweet to feel that you are really and truly a woman. She buried her face in her mother's lap, sobbing. You think I am dreadful, I know, but I am honest and I tell you just how I feel." Mrs. Morse was strangely sad and happy. Her child-daughter, who was a Bachelor of Arts, was gone. But in her place was a woman-daughter. The experiment had succeeded. The strange void in Ruth's nature had been filled, and filled without danger or penalty. This rough sailor-fellow had been the instrument, and, though Ruth did not love him, he had made her conscious of her womanhood. His hand trembles, Ruth was confessing, her face, for shame's sake, still buried. It is almost amusing and ridiculous, but I feel sorry for him, too. And when his hands are too trembly, and his eyes too shiny, why, I lecture him about his life and the wrong way he is going about it to mend it. But he worships me, I know. His eyes and his hands do not lie and it makes me feel grown up, the thought of it, the very thought of it, and I feel that I am possessed of something that is by rights my own, that makes me like the other girls, and, and young women. And then, too, I knew that I was not like them before, and I knew that it worried you. You thought you did not let me know that dear worry of yours, 
but I did, and I wanted to, to make good, as Martin Eden says. It was a holy hour for mother and daughter, and their eyes were wet as they talked on in the twilight, Ruth all white innocence and frankness, her mother sympathetic, receptive, yet calmly explaining and guiding. "'He is four years younger than you,' she said. "'He has no place in the world. He has neither position nor salary. He is impractical. Loving you, he should, in the name of common sense, be doing something that would give him the right to marry, instead of paltering around with those stories of his and with childish dreams. Martin Eden, I am afraid, will never grow up. He does not take to responsibility and a man's work in the world like your father did, or like all our friends, Mr. Butler for one. Martin Eden, I am afraid, will never be a money-earner, and this world is so ordered that money is necessary to happiness. Oh, no, not these swollen fortunes, but enough money to permit of common comfort and decency. He, he has never spoken. He has not breathed a word. He has not attempted to. But if he did, I would not let him, because, you see, I do not love him. I am glad of that. I should not care to see my daughter, my one daughter, who is so clean and pure, love a man like him. There are noble men in the world who are clean and true and manly. Wait for them. You will find one some day, and you will love him and be loved by him, and you will be happy with him as your father and I have been happy with each other. And there is one thing you must always carry in mind. Yes, mother? Mrs. Morse's voice was low and sweet, as she said. And that is the children. I have thought about them, Ruth confessed, remembering the wanton thoughts that had vexed her in the past, her face again red with maiden shame, that she should be telling such things. And it is that, the children, that makes Mr. Eden impossible, Mrs. Morse went on incisively. Their heritage must be clean, and he is, I am afraid, not clean. Your father has told me of sailors' lives, and—and and you understand. Ruth pressed her mother's hand in assent, feeling that she really did understand, though her conception was of something vague, remote, and terrible that was beyond the scope of imagination. "'You know I do nothing without telling you,' she began. "'Only sometimes you must ask me, like this time. I wanted to tell you, but I did not know how. It is false modesty, I know it is that, but you can make it easy for me. Sometimes, like this time, you must ask me, you must give me a chance.' "'Why, mother, you are a woman, too.' she cried exultantly as they stood up, catching her mother's hands and standing erect, facing her in the twilight, conscious of a strangely sweet equality between them. I should never have thought of you in that way if we had not had this talk. I had to learn that I was a woman to know that you were one too. We are women together, her mother said, drawing her to her and kissing her. We are women together, she repeated, as they went out of the room, their arms around each other's waists, their hearts swelling with a new sense of companionship. "'Our little girl has become a woman,' Mrs. Morse said proudly to her husband an hour later. "'That means,' 
he said, after a long look at his wife, that means she is in love. No, but that she is loved, was the smiling rejoinder. The experiment has succeeded. She is awakened at last. Then we'll have to get rid of him. Mr. Moore spoke briskly, in matter-of-fact, business-like tones. But his wife shook her head. It will not be necessary. Ruth says he is going to see in a few days. When he comes back, she will not be here. We will send her to Aunt Clara's. And, besides, a year in the East, with the change in climate, people, ideas, and everything, is just the thing she needs. End of chapter 19